Well, I just want to uh, thank uh, a number of you that are back after I've seen a number of folks that have been self-quarantining, what's, what's the term, quarantining, and uh, it's just good to see uh, a number of you back today. We want to welcome in our center worshipers as well, and those that are coming in some kind of digital form, streaming or some that will be watching a little later, we just want to welcome everyone that's coming in. Would you find your way all the way over in your Old Testament to the book? I know some of you are thinking Exodus. No, 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 no. Nehemiah chapter 4. Would you find your way over there to Nehemiah chapter number 4? For uh, you that have been out of sync or haven't been with us, we are taking a few moments uh, over these months of August and September to just uh, look at our preparation for the transition that we're in. And uh, we, we know that there are certain groups of people that God calls very specifically for tasks, and he's done that throughout the history. Throughout history of humanity, there have been those moments that God has set aside a specific group of people for a specific task. And in our English language, in the literary, uh, literary circles, we would call this for such a time as this. For these and this moment being called for this task. And we believe that our church is called to a specific task. That's now been verified over the last three years of I see what now, 38 different committee members from strategic planning to transition committees and uh, master planning committees and one committee after another leading our church uh, in, in, into this time of transition. We know in the next couple years, this transition will begin to start to unfold. It'll be God's timing in his way, but we just want to seek as his people to be obedient to that call. And when you just take a moment, and I'll just have them project it, uh, we, we're not going to look at all the Jewish timeline and history today, but when you come into this second temple building period, there are some really dramatic moments. We've been looking at one of the first dramatic moments of God's children when they made the exodus. And what we're doing is we're just picking up some lessons that we're going to need we're going to need over these next couple years for this journey. I can assure you, that's why I'm asking you, save your notes. Now, I'm going ahead and let the cat out of the bag today, okay? I still want you to save your notes. But uh, just to be sure that you have your notes, I'm having notes bound for you at the end of this series, just to be sure. And I have some little extra bonus notes in there because we are going to need these messages, this information biblically to successfully make our transition. We know it's not going to be easy. We know it's going to be a challenge. And we're just picking up week by week important steps, important information, important principles that we're going to need. Now, in the first week, all the way back in August 2nd, we talked about really the most important element, and that's our commitment. You and I, if we're going to make a successful transition, called by God to do anything out of the extraordinary. We know it's going to take commitment. Commitment. Nothing's going to happen without us being committed. You can't have a good marriage without commitment, amen? You can't really do a good job for an employer unless you're committed to it. A student can't be their very best unless they're committed. And then we talked last week about a new phenomenon for many of you, and we just called it presence awareness. We've got to come to the understanding that as we're making this journey in this transition, 
there's a God with us. It's not just some group of humanity here in our own strength. God is leading us. He's with us. And that is reaffirmed over and over and over in our biblical text. And helping people come and grasp an understanding of that is very significant. Now we're going to take a third step today. And we're going to do so, as you look at this little timeline, we know there was this really devastating time period, uh, oh, beginning right after the year 1000 BC and unfolding over the next several hundred years where the children of Israel, well, there's a number of terms for it, the diaspora, the disbursement of the people. We know the Babylonians and Assyrians pretty much came in and did major devastation to the Jerusalem area and began to clean out what we know as the promised land. All of those years of conquest, great leaders like Moses, Joshua and others that got the children of Israel settled in the promised land only to be rooted out. The temple was desecrated in the worst and vile most ways. It was torn down. The walls around Jerusalem were destroyed. And we know God's children were dispersed. On your little timeline there, you see that temple, Solomon's great temple, was completed in 960. But in 586, we know that Babylonia ended that reign and that rule and completely destroyed it. And it was not until 538 to 516 that we really started having three major waves of Jewish exiles coming back from Babylonia and other places that they had been deported to. You know, it's really frightening to me to lay down Oakland Heights Baptist Church, really to lay down American church culture beside Nehemiah 4 today and see, see how many parallel similarities there are. We too have a people that are gradually coming back and everyone's not back. They had the same thing unfolding whether it be Zerubbabel that led a group in or Nehemiah that led a third and final wave in, trickling effect, little by little, people were coming back to this promised land and resettling around the Jerusalem area. And as they did so, many would look around. I mean, it had been years, 60, 70 years in many cases since they had been they had left and things were different and things had changed and there were challenges. We know that God used Zerubbabel to build back this temple area. It was not built back to the standards that Solomon had and in fact, just a shadow of what it really was. We know that that complete rebuilding wouldn't happen until Herod's leadership a little later on in history. But what a, what a key moment that a that people were called during that period of time, over about a 40, 45 year period, a group of people called to two very important tasks. Number one, rebuild this temple. And then number two, another group called to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And today I want us to spend a few moments and take some principles that we need, we desperately need, in our church life, in this transition time in our lives, in our history of our church, these are going to be extremely important to us. By the way, one of the greatest, greatest tests of a significant and effective church is how it handles opposition. 
How does it handle opposition? How does it handle problems and challenges that emerge? In your title of our message today, you see that I chose to use the word problems. I know a number of people say, well, we should never use the word problem. We should use challenges. Well, you call them what what you will, but there are difficulties that come against any group of people that are trying to do anything for the Lord. Can I hear an amen? If you do anything, there's going to be opposition. Can you agree with that in American culture today? If you do anything, there'll be some opposition. Amen? It really doesn't matter what we do, there's going to be some opposition. Just kind of a part of the culture that we live in. So with that in mind, let's take a moment with our Bibles open to Nehemiah chapter 4 and let's complete a couple of lists today that are going to help us. Are you in a listing mood? I hope so. Take notes, keep your notes, and let's work through two very important lists together. First of all, let's spend a few moments in the text and identify what kind of challenges, what kind of problems, what kind of difficulties were the children of Israel facing as they returned to their homeland. As they now had a temple up, they were worshiping it, only a shadow of what it was. But regardless, a place to bring their offerings, a place to worship their God. Zerubbabel had been such a key leader in making this happen, but still, as you know, a city, a wall, gates provided very important protection. And by the way, these people were in no mood, no mood to mess around with danger. Many of them had left bones of their remains in Babylonia. Many of them, their fathers and mothers, had been buried in a foreign land. They came back and, see, and saw that where the foundation and the very footing of the temple had been, the place they had worshipped their God, it had become a latrine, that's right, an outhouse for foreigners. There was no greater filthy desecration than what the children of Israel were experiencing. They came back a broken, humble people, just hoping they could scratch out a meager existence and start all over again, hoping that a God would be with them. Aren't there many, many parallel similarities in God's word so often to thousands of years ago and what we even experience. And so it was this as they came back, the temple was being restored and now it was time for the walls to be rebuilt as God laid on a messenger's heart by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you're the man. I want you to lead these people to get these walls and these gates and this protective measure rebuilt and reestablished as it once was. And under Nehemiah's careful and and wise assignments, each section of that wall was to progress. And the plan was for it to progress smoothly. It was a wonderful plan. Nehemiah had orchestrated and systematically laid it out. God had let him see it up close. He He was using Nehemiah's administrative skills to make it happen. But you know, the nation of Israel really faced some incredible opposition Look in the first three verses, and let's jot down and make this list. What did they face? Number, number one, they faced ridicule. Number one, they faced 
ridicule. Look in chapter 4 and verse 1. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, well, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life uh, from, from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then the Ammonite, Tobiah, got involved. Look in verse 3. Uh, Ammonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down their walls of stone. Immediately, we begin to see that ridicule becomes a real problem. People making fun of, making light of the very task that God had called them. We don't really have time to turn there, but just maybe want to make a note in the margin there. Nehemiah 2.10 tells us a little bit about this opponent, Samballot, early on in the book of Nehemiah. And it's interesting, in Nehemiah 2.10, there's this phrase that Samballot utters. As he hears that Nehemiah is coming in for this purpose, he uses this phrase. It says, he was deeply disturbed. That's how the Bible describes the demeanor around Samballot, the opponent. He was deeply disturbed that there was one coming in seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. And you, we've got to understand that when God calls us to a task, wouldn't we be wise to fulfill that task despite what opposition we may face? You see, what God says is best, though all the men in the world are against it. You know, I was thinking this week, man, we, boy, the culture we live in, our church is, have you thought about this? The church is now returning back to the very place several thousand years ago that it thrived. The church today and American culture, in fact, it's once again, we find ourselves in the margins of society. No longer at the top of the heap, but at the bottom of society. You look around and no longer is the church and people, I mean, man, 30, 40, 50 years ago, attending church and church action in a community and in a state and in a nation, it meant something. But no longer is the church respected and influential, but we're treated and called idiots and bigots and intolerant people. But I, I don't know about you. You and I may be far apart on these extremes at this moment, but I'm very excited about where we are in this cultural element because historically the church has thrived in these kinds of days. You look back in a historical look at the church and it has flourished in these kinds of opportunities when there's all kinds of adversity around it and we have the opportunity to be God's faithful people, to be called on his mission, but it's going to take great courage. So we see ridicule, big issue. But look down in verse number seven and eight, there was also resistance. There was also resistance. Look in verse 7. But when Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry 
And look at what their anger turned into in verse eight. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Resistance. Now we know in the Bible, when we talk about this book of Nehemiah, when God had his people on mission or on task, opposition was really correlated to the evilness that was coming against it. We know that even in our transition, we're going to face evil schemes. Amen? We're going to face that. That's just going to be a part of it. But we know also, if you look in Nehemiah 4 and 5, we know that the opposition from without is mentioned in Nehemiah 4. We also know in Nehemiah 5, there's opposition from within as well. A moment ago, and this will be the subject at lunch. I mean, it's just invariable. Somebody at our table is going to say, well, I heard some people vote against the motions. Now, they won't speak to the 98% of the people who voted for it. They're going to say something about some voted against. Isn't that the way Baptists do? Go ahead and bob your heads, Yes. We wish we would have had complete unity on every vote. That's our goal. That's our aim. When we look at these committees and the extent that they went to, trying to pray, present, take time, assist. But you you just have to understand in unsettled times, there are people that are fearful. There are people that are concerned. How many people are in the church? There were the workers around these walls. Do we have enough to finish it? Can we get the task done? And so I would just encourage you that not all resistance inside the body is necessarily negative, mean-spirited. There are those that just have feelings that maybe this is not God's will, it's not his timing, and we've got to love those folks and embrace them on both sides of the aisle, as we know in American culture is such a cry and clamoring for that moment. And I hope we can do that in the church. I hope the love that we have for our Lord and Savior and the love he has for us will bridge us even in those moments when we all don't agree on the exact task, the exact timing. But when the church does make a decision, we've all got to cinch up and pull in one unified direction. And these builders of the wall, as they began to surround this, there was resistance. Over in Nehemiah 5, it's interesting. We won't have time to look there today. But there were disturbances inside the camp over food, over property, over taxes. Can I just share something with you that I've learned about change? I want you to jot this down in your margin and remember this as we go through these transition days. Resistance to change is more about feeling than fact. You can write that down and book it. Resistance to change is always much more about feeling than fact. 30 years it's taken me to understand this principle. You see, those workers at the wall, many of them were resisting moving forward with the wall progress because they had a feeling and they sensed danger. It didn't matter what the facts were. It didn't matter where Nehemiah stacked extra guards behind them. It didn't matter what armory he put at their disposal. Many of them were reacting out of feeling rather than out of fact. 
And so we know that change so often and resistance to change can come externally, so often evil and evil forces, but it can also come internally. Ridicule and resistance, did you get that? And then number three, let's look at another problem. Look down in verse 11, it's the rumor. It's rumor, the rumor mill got going. That's why we know there were some Baptists there in that day and time. Verse number 11, also our enemies said, did you notice that? Sticks and stones, how's that little statement go? You remember it. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Look in verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Well, the rumor mill got working. Just out in your margin somewhere in some some, some white space. You know relatives to the rumor mill are these things, slander. Slander is a cousin. Backbiting is a cousin. And here is a pretty new phenomenon in our day and time, not really joking jokes. That's a part of rumor, not really joking jokes. You ever been around someone that does that, employs that little tactic? Well, it was, it was kind of told in a funny way. Well, I, you know I'm just kidding, but they got the information they wanted communicated. Whispered innuendo, there's another close partner And even those moments, we see this all the time. Oh, man, after rumor, we get this concept. Man, I was just completely wrong. I shared all of these things, and looking back, I was just completely wrong. You know, I wrote down in in my notes, Proverbs 26.20. You remember what the writer of Proverbs said? Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel, a quarrel dies down. So immediately as we're reading in Nehemiah chapter 4, we begin to see what? Some real problems arising. Rumor, ridicule, resistance. But under Nehemiah's leadership and really a model for the nation of Israel, they had some good responses. So what are we saying here? Let's be clear. Let's be crystal clear. You know, the moment that we charted a course, you should have been expecting, I should have been expecting, there's going to be some resistance along the way. It's going to come in different forms and fashions. Some of it we're going to expect. Some of it we can predict. Others are going to come absolutely from nowhere. Any journey is going to have that experience. Anything worth, worth the cost of achieving achieving is there's going to be a price to pay for it and so what I want you to see now is how the nation of Israel handled some of these under the leadership of Nehemiah could it be just asking that over the next couple years there's going to be some moments that we're going to be able to go back and say ah ah look this has surfaced here's a group over here that says well we don't have enough money how do we handle that Oh, look over here. Oh, look, we're trying to build this and there's not enough building materials. We can't get this particular material for the trade. Or this comes up, or that comes up. 
are there going to be some of these principles that maybe God intends for us that will be useful for us? Let's quickly, and I'll, I'll move quickly. Let's make a list of those and note them. Number one, I want you to see how this nation of Israel in this process of rebuilding a wall relied on God. Number one, they relied on God. Look down in verse number four and verse number five. Read along with me. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Man, do you hear their heart? God, these enemies, they hate us. We come face to face and even at night we see them sneaking around. We can hear them out there scheming. It's like we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Look in verse five. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. You and I know that trusting God does not come easy. Trusting God does not come easy. And so you and I, even though we can't see God in a tangible way or touch him or even hear his voice in a way that we hear other human voices, what we do have is we can rely upon the experiences year after year in history. And even those experiences in our immediate past of how God has led us and loved us and been right there with us through every challenge that we've had. When you and I see how God has kept his word for others, it encourages us. I don't know about you, but man, isn't the Bible a great source of that? When we go back in history, all those different experiences of how God's people have been led, spanning thousands of years, generations of humanity, the Bible testifies to God's goodness. You see, God's not wanting us to try harder today as a church. God's desiring for us to trust him more deeply. It's not about us striving and trying, but it's us learning to be more trusting of him. You know, one thing I've learned through lots of years of experience, decisions become much, much easier when you, when it's, it's, it's your desire to please the will of God in your life. When you do that, that outweighs the pressures of the world every single time. Did you get that first one? There was a true reliance of God. They relied on God, but they also respected the opposition. Look at this, they respected the opposition. Look down in verse number nine. The Bible says in verse nine, Nehemiah four, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. They took the threat very, very seriously. You know, you and I have got to understand something that the opposition that we'll be facing, especially the external opposition, it's nothing to play around about. Spiritual warfare is deadly. That's maybe why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul said something, he said, now the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, and here's how he described it, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We know that Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, spoke about the schemes of these that come against us. Listen to Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand, listen to it, against the devil's schemes. You see, this opposition that the folks around the wall were facing, 
They weren't lightweights. And the opposition and the resistance that you and I face, we've got to be able to respect that opposition. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, and in the heavenly realms. So we've got to be aware of the strength of the opposition, respected the opposition. Number three, they reinforced their weak points. Jot it down. They reinforced their weak points. Now, testing your memory for just a moment, three weeks ago when we introduced this series, talking about this promising passage and transition, if you'll remember, you and I talked about we have some areas in our church that we're working on, some weak areas. And we said most of the time that comes from wrong thinking. Many times it's generated out of an attitude. We went through a whole long list, three or four of those items that we are working on because we're aware, hey, these are some things that as a church we're not as strong as we need to be right now. Can you imagine trying to take on so much of an expanse as of, of a wall? Some of it was damaged more severely than others. Some of it was in pretty good shape. Other parts of it were completely decimated. So look at what it tells us in, in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 13. Look at how it describes how they took care of these reinforced points, these, to reinf uh, reinforce these weak points. Verse 13, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Wow. Reinforcement of weak points. You know, we could stop here. Why don't we? And throw on the brakes. You know, as a church, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And so what's so important in church life is some of you are in circles that really I can't even touch. Some of you have conversations that I'll never be able to have. Your staff, your leadership. And when we sense one of those weak links is about to fail, that's where it would be our duty and responsibility to come alongside of them and try to shore that link up. I love the book of Nehemiah because it, was so strategically placed that side by side, one portion after another, they had to have total reliance on one another. As a church family, we've got to get to that place with a unified effort that we can trust one another side by side. One weak area will allow invasion strong opposition to come into our camp and that we do not want quickly you're not listening fast enough we've got to jot down number four jot it down not just reinforce the weak points but reassured the people they reassured the people Look down in verse 14. Let's keep reading. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid. 
Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. How important is it to reassure people? Can I just share with you, I, man, I've just been watching like you have the property pay off and you, you know, we're in somewhere in between that 2.2, $2.3 million uh, place right now financially with our resources for the property and things that come after that. And then trying to finish up in the middle of a pandemic, this three-year campaign. But, you know, I, I, I've, just, I've just watched that as it's unfold as, as you have. And one of the things I'm reminded uh, about is, you know, just as human nature that's a part of us all. Anybody here not human today? Can I see your hands? Just as a part of human nature, we know that that's just who we are. So often, the first half of a task is not nearly so difficult as the second half ends up being. Because so often, you and I jump in, we're excited, it's new, it's we don't really know what it's going to involve, but hey, we're for it. And we get in there and we begin to toil. We begin to labor. We begin to work and things are rocking along good. And then all of a sudden we hit a plateau or a midpoint and all of a sudden we back away. And then pretty soon, I, I wonder around the wall if somebody out there in about day 23 said, you know what, I'm exhausted and I don't know if we're ever going to finish this. You think that was said somewhere around the wall? If you do, raise your hand. Me too. I think that was said more than once. I bet somebody began to get agitated with somebody else and said, you know what, I'm putting in 10 hours a day of hard digging out here and you're sitting over at the water cooler half the day. I think tensions and patience began to wear a little thin and tensions began to surface. Because our natural tendency is to start strong as we attack any challenge or any project only at times to figure out, hey, it sure is easy to lose momentum. Especially when we're exerting this much energy and this much sacrifice. And let's be honest, when there's this much at stake, the stakes are high. Kingdom work Stakes in the kingdom work get no higher. And so with that in mind, how important is it that we reassure people? One reassuring word goes a long, long way. I want to encourage you. Be a reassuring person at the Oakland Heights wall. Not a grumbler. Not a mumbler. We've got plenty of critics around Longview, trust me, that scoff and ridicule of what we're attempting to do. There are plenty naysayers. The critic is around us all the time. But the rope holder and the person that'll stand committed side by side, we all need those words of reassurance. And so we see that the people are doing that and Nehemiah was doing that. Number five, man, how important is this? They refuse to quit. They refuse to quit. Look back at verse 15. The Bible says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. A refusal 
to quit. You know, quitting is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, isn't it? You know, I'm amazed at how many people make decisions when things are not going well. You want to know why people make decisions when things are not going well? They make decisions when things are not going well because they're looking for relief in their despair. That's why people choose to do that. My dad's sitting back here today, and one of the greatest lessons that my father taught me growing up is, son, never make a very important decision late at night. I don't have to look at notes to remember that. Son, never, ever, ever make a decision, especially an important decision, late at night. And many times I've asked my father, why was that so important for you to teach that to me? And he says, well, there's a second part to that lesson. Things always look, most of the time, much better, but they always look different the next morning. And that lesson has served me well. Why do people make big decisions in dark days and in times of great despair? Why would they make those in the valley of despair rather than to make them from the clarity of a mountaintop? You know, some great things happen when we wait on a mountaintop to make important decisions. Things like from that vantage point, you can see like no other. You're always working from a great place on a mountaintop and you always leave the people around you in a much better place than if you left them during the valley. Never quit. How important is that very lesson? You know, it's hard for any of us to be brave in the dark, isn't it? But by the way, it's only then again in the dark that you really know if you are brave. And this journey and this transition will take lots of courage and lots of bravery. Number six, let's jot it down. There is also a principle here of renewing the people's strength continually. To renew the people's strength continually. Would you look down at verse 16? Let's read a bit. For that day on... Half of the men did work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted them beside all the people of Judah who were building a wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Now, that's an interesting way to get the job done. I guess to get it done, that's what they had to do. Verse 18, and each of the builders wore his sword on his side as he worked. But, but, but the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed with me. And then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. And at that time, I said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as the guards by night and as the workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor the men. They, they, uh, we, none of us took, uh, removed our clothing and each had his weapon even when he went to the water. Wow. 
a constant renewal of strength. You know, we all need to be renewed and reinvigorated at certain points. Not any of us are able to sustain a maximum effort the whole time of our existence and lives. And in doing so, it's important for us to remember that sometimes we have to come apart so we don't fall apart. For years, if you go back and look, this rebuilding process, one wave after another of people coming back, as this began to unfold, there were, there were those moments when work had to cease. Even Zerubbabel rebuilding what we call the second temple. That work stopped and it restarted, and it stopped and it restarted. The people became depressed and discouraged and demoralized only once again to regain spiritual perspective and then they began to rise above their circumstances and accomplish the task that God had called them to. So important that you and I have this time for renewal and that we make sure that each other, each of our kindred spirits are renewed. We need to watch for those that are exhausted and frazzled. You know, there's a fine line between accomplishing what God has for us and shrinking away for anything less than that. There's a fine line between accomplishing exactly what God's called us to accomplish and anything less. So often when God uniquely calls a body of Christ together to accomplish something, and maybe the way gets difficult, maybe the challenges are great, we begin to see people shrink back. We begin to see people that rationalize, well, maybe we could do this instead, or they compromise and say, well, maybe that was too much to ask, or they shrink away, or they deviate from what God has called them, only in the end to say, see, we got some things accomplished, we did some good work, but yet God so often, in those unique times when he calls a group of people, all God's work is special, wouldn't you agree, Amen. But there are some people that God sets aside for a very, very special task. Over 60 years ago, God commissioned about 100 people out of a local church here in Longview to come to Bramlett Elementary for that day and that time to accomplish that mission. It soon became known, it became known as the Oakland Heights Baptist Church. Soon they were out of that school and into some vacant farmland right here where we sit today. All work is special, but that work, it was uniquely special. And now God has called us to something uniquely special. And in doing so, you and I have got to understand there's a fine line in doing what God has called us to do and doing it completely just as he called us to do it and being able to see any shrinking away, any differentiation, and rationalizing that being God's will. The two look so closely identical. It's important that you and I be able to distinguish between the two. Last week, I shared with you something pretty personal. I shared with you in, in my office at home how I pray to a chair. I was taken back this week to get seven calls and 18 emails about that chair. A number of you want to see a picture of the chair, so I'll try to provide that for you in the future. 
One person watching from Ohio said, Pastor, we love you. We watched you in Ohio, but we now know that you're crazy preaching or, or, or praying to that chair. Well, today, when we leave in just a moment, you're going to think I'm crazier because I'm going to tell you something even more personal and more intimate about my life. Just to the left of my sink, I brush my teeth with Colgate toothpaste. That is the only toothpaste that I will use. And I will only use white paste. I don't want colored gel. I don't want anything else. I want Colgate and I want white paste. My wife, she, um, she and I differ on what toothpaste to use. She uses hers, I use mine. It's a terrible moment in our house if either one of us has to stoop so, so low to use the other's toothpaste. In fact, we usually sneak it if we run out. But the other morning, just before I went out to jog, oh, I'm sorry, to walk. I'm not supposed to tell my wife that I try to do some of the other. I reached down in the darkness of my bathroom, looked down and saw this tube, squeezed some out, began to brush my teeth. And it only took me just a few seconds for my whole night mouth to go numb from court aid anti-itch medicine. Now I want to put the two tubes up here side by side for you. This is the actual picture of my court aid anti-itch and my Colgate paste. Can you tell a difference? You couldn't tell a difference at 4.30 a.m. in the dark. When I looked at those things side by side in broad daylight and had a chuckle with my wife about it, which it was not so funny at the moment it was going on. As I took off for my exercise that morning, my whole gums were numb. Nothing itched or scratched, I will assure you. <laughs> but all joking aside, do you see how closely they are similar? It would take a real seasoned eye. Both of them start with C. Both of them in red and white tubes. They look almost identical. But the content, much much different and the two are meant to accomplish something of totally different purpose that's how fine a line there is in honoring God's word when he calls us to an unusually special task when God calls us to an unusually special task he asks that we fulfill it just as he's mandated every portion of it, no shrinking back, something looking similar, because I can assure you, the look-alike will not have nearly the purpose and promise that the real mission of God encompasses when he calls his people to fulfill it. Would you pray with me this morning?
Lord, I just thank you for these few moments as we just inch along together in these pivotal moments when we're able to go back thousands and thousands of years ago when you've called your children to accomplish something very special but uniquely special. Different passages, different journeys, different voyages, different tasks that you set aside a specific group of people in that moment, in that time to accomplish. And Father, as we just build our war chest of principles and scriptural doctrine, we know we're going to need every ounce of it as we migrate together over these next couple of years. Father, we know there's internal work, much that needs to be done. There's environmental and external work that needs to be accomplished. And right now, as we look at it, encompassing a pandemic, an election year, in chaos and confusion in our nation, Father, it's just almost too much for us to, to be able to embrace. The tendency is to shrink back. It's too much. We can't fulfill it. And Father, we are exactly right. We can't. But you can. You can accomplish whatever you desire through your body, through your New Testament church. You can do all things. So Father, what we are trying to drag ourselves to the altar today to be able to do, even in spite of fear in some cases, concern and anxiety, Father, we just want to drag ourselves up to your altar today and say, here we are. Not much, but Father, we know we're more than enough when you empower us, when you strengthen us, when you use us, and when you call us to your task. Father, I pray today for those that may be discouraged in our church family, those that may be displaced because of this pandemic. I pray that maybe our calls, maybe our porch visits, maybe our muffin drop-off and deliveries, maybe all of these contacts have been just the encouragement that someone really needs. Father, use us to identify those moments in our church life and we can really encourage someone. Father, we pray today that as our church moves forward, that we know there'll be opposition outside and some in, but Father, I pray that you would unify us in such a way that we would be able to join hands at the wall of whatever we're called to accomplish, whether it be a Lottie Moon offering, whether it be ministering to South Ward in the middle of a pandemic, a school that's so desperately needing our encouragement, whether it be in Slovenia or Brazil, whether it be at the Highway 80 Rescue Mission, whether it be in a hospital or a member's home, Father, I pray that you would just unify us to accomplish all of these different tasks that you've laid out in front of us. It will take our very best and then some. And Father, behind it all, we know that we worship and we serve the holy God that created this entire universe. Thank you for being our God. Keep our sights on what you've called us to accomplish. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.